Good morning, my new church family. I'm really tempted to <clears throat> wax eloquent about how excited and, I, and honored I am to have uh, received the position here and to get to um, give my life to the glory of God by loving and serving you guys and being loved and served by you guys, but um, this is sacred time where the Word of God is meant to be preached, and I'm not going to say any more than just to say I'm excited and I'm honored and I can't wait to get to know all of you. <clears throat> As John said, my name's Chad, if you forgot. We're continuing our series uh, through Hebrews. As you heard, just read, we're, we're in chapter 6, verses 13 through 20. I've titled the sermon, The Hope of God's Unchanging Oath. I want to start with a story. The summer in between my junior and senior year of college, I went to see my grandma. And for, for those of Cajun ancestry, we call them Mama, not Grandma. I went to see Mama in Louisiana. And one of the scariest things that's ever happened in my life happened on the plane flight home from seeing her. We were about 20 or 30 minutes from landing, and the pilot got on the intercom and said, hey, everyone, we're, we're 20 or 30 minutes out, and it's going to be a really, really rough landing. So you need to put your seatbelts on and tighten them really tight. And I thought that was weird because we weren't flying into DIA. I was like in a layover in LA, and I was like, I've flown into DIA a million times. It's really bumpy, but the, the pilot has never got on and said it's going to be really bumpy. And so we're like, okay, we put our seatbelts on, we tie them tight, and then a little bit later, I can't remember if it was the pilot this time or a stewardess, said, if you're on this flight and you're with your family, but you're not seated with your family, please get up, do shuffle around, and sit with your family. Thank you, thank you. I didn't know if I was the only one. I was like, are you, wait. Are we like saying our final goodbyes? That's terrifying. What do you mean? I'm, I'm there alone. I have no friends or family. I'm sitting in between two people. It was scary. It's not over yet. So um, later the stewardesses come by and say, not only do we need to make sure your seatbelts are really tight, but um, you're going to bend down and hug your knees when we land really tight. <laughs> And I'm still trying to be cool, play it cool. I'm not a Christian at this point. I might have offered up a prayer. People are starting to get hysterical. The only way you know I'm freaked out is I have pit stains from here to here. I remember just sweating like, oh my gosh, stay cool, Chad. And then finally, I think the, the pilot decided we need to know what's going on. So he gets on the intercom and says, so here's the deal, you guys. The emergency brake is locked on. So... Good luck. I can't remember what else he said. He didn't say much else. He just left us to our own imaginations, which probably all of us went to. I know I did. I'm thinking of the physics. Okay, like if the, if the, tire, if the wheels aren't going to rotate, when we land at going a few hundred miles an hour, it's going to rip the tires off right away, and then we're going to be ice skating down a runway on rims. You know, are we going to go left and right and fly off the, the runway into the grass, or is it going to be like back over front like you see in the dark night when the semi-truck goes back over front, like what's going to happen? Are we all going to die? I'm starting to get a little dramatic, but it's scary. I mean, I hope you guys are feeling the fear of this situation. And so then we're about to land, we're hugging our knees, and the anti-climax of the story, smoothest landing I've ever been a part of <laughs> in my whole life. And I forgot to say, people are like, Oh, disobeying the rules, they're calling loved ones, the people next to me like, hey mom, I'm about to be in baby, you're a really bad plane accident, I love you, 
And then I couldn't even tell when we touched the ground, just smooth landing. And the pilot gets on and says, well, I guess the e-brake wasn't locked on. It must be a problem on the dashboard. <laughs> Welcome to L.A. <laughs> and I, I also forgot to say, probably the main point of that story, it's so fun to say, I'm forgetful. Um, the stewardesses are coming around telling everyone it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. And I remember in that moment, as I thought about sharing this story, I'm like, I was so angry at them. You can't tell me it's going to be okay. The e-brake's locked on. You have no certainty and no power to make sure it's going to be okay. Another part of the story, the, the runway was literally from beginning to end lined with ambulances and fire trucks. The whole thing. They were ready to take all of us to the hospital. And you're going to be okay. We're all going to be okay, which we were by God's grace. The point of that story, though, you guys, is I couldn't, I couldn't trust the stewardess or the captain. She didn't know if we were going to be okay. She couldn't absolutely and infallibly keep her promise. Our lives are full of terrifying plane rides, are they not? And we can ask questions like, am I going to make it? Am I going to make a shipwreck of my faith? Who can I trust? Because we Christians who have a doctrine of sin know that the world is full of sinful and lying people. And many of us, even as Christians, don't keep all of our promises and our word. Well, you know what I'm going to say. We can trust God, brothers and sisters. We can trust God. He is all-powerful, unchanging, and his promise to save us is unchanging and irrevocable. I want you guys to hear this this morning. Our motivation to press on in faith and patience flow from the absolute guarantee of God's promise to save us through Jesus Christ, our eternal great high priest. Let me give you some context really quick that's always important in any sermon. Um, just from last week, in um, chapter 5, verse 10, the author of Hebrews was about to start talking about Melchizedek. Uh, he, was, he was really about to launch into that. Dan reminded us, us of that last week in the text that he preached, which starts at 5.11. The author of Hebrews says, about this we have much to say, referring to, I was about to tell you all about what it means that Jesus is the high priest after the order of Melchizedek, but I'm going to go on this pastoral parenthesis because you guys have become lazy of hearing and sluggish, and he gives that you know, terrifying warning and encouragement, but the warning is you, know, you better not have a fake faith, a spurious faith. Do not re-crucify the Son of God. If, if God has saved you and there's a root of salvation, there's going to be a fruit of works in your lives. And the author's certain of that for the Hebrews. You remember he said that in verse 9, we're sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. And then in verses 11 and 12 of last week's sermon of, of chapter 6, I just want to remind you guys, this is really important for the text this morning, so I'm just going to read it. This is what the author of Hebrews says. We desire each one of you, to show the same earnestness, to have full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So, so that is the launching point of the text this morning. The author really wants his audience and, and us to have full assurance, to have hope, that we wouldn't be sluggish, that we would be imitators, namely of Abraham. He's going to use his, him as an example of of those who, through faith and patience, inherit the promises. So let me pray, and then we'll dive into the word this morning. Lord, thanks again for this morning. We have already prayed much to you this morning, but there's no such thing, Lord, as too much prayer. 
Um, we need you now. I need you now as I preach your word. Pray you'd get me out of the way and we would just stare on you, the triune God who has guaranteed our salvation. Lord, we look back at what you've done for us in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, and we are humbled in adoration and worship. Lord, I pray that you'd use this time this morning to uh, sanctify your people and to draw those who aren't yet yours to yourself, that they would see that whatever they're trusting in isn't trustworthy, but you are trustworthy, and you are all-powerful, and you infallibly keep your promises. We love you and praise you, Lord, and pray it in the name of our Lord and Savior and King and Treasure, Jesus Christ. Amen. So I've broken the, the sermon and the text this morning into three sections. First, God's oath to Abraham. Second, God's oath to the heirs of promise. And third, God's oath that gives us strong encouragement. So before we dive into verses 13 and through 15 about Abraham, we need some context. These verses here in 13 through 15 are referring to a scene in Genesis 22. But to help us better understand the scene in Genesis 22, we need to go back and consider the promises of God to Abraham in Genesis 12 and 15. So you don't have to turn there. I think it'll be on the screen. We're going to go kind of fast, but not too fast. I think this is going to be easy to follow and understand. So let's consider Genesis 12 first. This is when God first calls Abraham, then Abram. He hadn't changed his name yet, but here's what he says in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Abram, sorry, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's an amazing promise. The whole rest of the Bible flows from that promise. Abraham was 75 years old when he first received that promise from God in Genesis 12. You picture Abraham kind of thinking, well, what do you mean you're going to make of me a great nation? You know, he doesn't, he doesn't have any kids. You've read the story. He, Sarah's barren. They have no kids. So in, in Genesis chapter 15, Abraham is having some what I call intense fellowship with God. He's discouraged because his only heir is seemingly some distant relative in Damascus named Eliezer. He says, God, you haven't given me a son. How are you going to make of me a great nation? I ain't got no kids. And in Genesis 15, 4 and 5, God says this, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man, referring to Eliezer of Damascus, shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Amazing promise. And then we read in chapter 21, we're not going to go there, I'll just summarize what it says. Isaac is born to Abraham and Sarah, and Abraham is 100 years old when Isaac is born. So they waited 25 years for their promised son. And quickly, we have to look in the mirror of God's word and ask ourselves, what are, what are you waiting for right now? And has it been 25 years to us microwave Americans, it sounds like cruel and unusual punishment to have to wait for something for 25 years. But 
but from God's perspective, it's not that long. God does so much work in our hearts as we learn to wait on him. And I don't want to sound like a martyr of waiting. I won't even share ways that my wife and I have waited. I would just say we have waited for things. And I wouldn't change it. And I hope you wouldn't either. Some of the most amazing work that God has done in me and my wife's lives are in seasons of waiting. And I think in my experience of following Jesus, we're always going to be waiting on something. That's kind of God's design in his economy. And it's good for us. So push into the waiting. Whatever you're waiting for, push into it. Push into God. The final scene we need to consider to help us understand the passage in Hebrews is Genesis 22, which is what Hebrews 6, 13 through 15 is referring to. So in Genesis 22, God tests Abraham by telling him to sacrifice Isaac. It's an amazing scene. I'm sure you've, most of you, all of you have read it. God says to Abraham, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. Imagine Abraham's heart. But Abraham, he wakes up early. He takes Isaac, two servants, and some wood for the offering and goes to the place that God told him to go. And Abraham... This whole time, when we read the story, trusts that somehow, some way, God isn't going to make him go through with it, or that if he does, God will raise Isaac from the dead on the spot. It's so cool. He tells the servants, stay here, we're going to go do the sacrifice, and we're going to come back to you. And just as Abraham is about to slaughter his son, an angel of the Lord stops him. You know the scene, it's amazing, it's powerful. Genesis 22, 12 through 14, the angel of the Lord says, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And then an angel calls down a second time. And in verses 15 through 18 of Genesis 22, it says this, The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, Now here it is in our text, By myself... I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. There's our context. Now let's consider the author of Hebrews' commentary on these verses. Verse 13 through 15, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. The author of Hebrews reminds us about God's promise to Abraham and that God swore by himself. 
his promise. He made this promise to Abraham, and he swore that the promise would come true. So he confirmed that promise with an oath. And again, he swore that oath by himself. Why? Because he had no one greater by whom to swear. There's no one greater than God. And verse 16 reminds us the nature of an oath. Listen to verse 16. For people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. This is still the way it works, right? At least when we were kids. I remember as a kid swearing on my mother or swearing on my mother's grave. Am I the only one who did this as a kid? Some of you did. I don't know why we don't swear on our dads or our grandfathers. Maybe that's just me, but for me it was always my mom or my grandma or their graves. A few times, I I don't remember specific scenarios, but I remember when someone like thought something really bad of me, like I stole something or some bully was about to beat me up, I would swear to God. I grew up in a Christian household. I kind of had an intellectual understanding of God at least, and I would swear to God. Or sometimes you'd say, I swear... um, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye, right? And that's not swearing on someone greater, but something greater. Like, if I don't keep my promise, you can stick a needle in my eye. That's great suffering and pain that I don't want, so I'm just going to keep my word. As kids, we inherently knew the principle that if we swore on someone or something greater than ourselves, it added weight to our promise. It gave the other person more trust in our word that we would fulfill our promise. And that's the way it worked in ancient times, If two people were in a dispute or buying or selling something, they would swear on something greater than themselves. Some would swear on God, but others would swear on an emperor or some famous philosopher or something or someone greater to end the debate and confirm their promise. And so when God made a promise to Abraham, he swore an oath on himself that he would bless and multiply him. And since obviously there is no one greater than God, He swore by himself. And what was Abraham's role in this promise? To wait and to walk by faith and patience. God didn't say, I'll do 50% of this promise, and Abraham, you do 50% of my promise. As Abraham walked by faith and patience, he waited for God's promise to come to pass. And isn't it gracious of God to inspire the author of Hebrews to say that Abraham, having patiently waited. Most of us know the story of Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar. Abraham and Sarah tried to help God fulfill his promise by having Abraham sleep with Hagar and have a son through her. That wasn't very patient of Abraham, was it? And yet God shows grace. Abraham learns patience over the years. I've been in this church for six weeks, and one of my new favorite sayings is from Pastor Dan. It's about direction, not perfection. I love that. You guys are blessed to have that preached to you over and over again. It wasn't about perfect patience for Abraham. It was about a direction that God was bringing him on. Even though he showed this great impatience, God still calls him a man of patience. He was just a normal guy like me and you, struggling. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And God grows our patience in those moments. And it says that finally Abraham obtained the promise. 
Now, that's a potentially confusing thing to say. Had Abraham obtained a family as numerous as the stars? Had he become a great nation? Had all the families of the earth been blessed in him? Did he even know fully what that meant? Not yet. Not yet. But he did receive the son of promise, Isaac. It seems that God wants us to know that receiving partial fulfillment of his promises is as good as receiving full fulfillment. We can trust that he will give us full fulfillment of his promises. Abraham lived in the already and the not yet, and so do we. I know many of you probably know what I mean when I say that, but if you don't, The already not yet refers to the theological reality that God has already begun to fulfill his promises, chiefly in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. But the full or complete fulfillment is not yet realized. God fulfilled his promise to Abraham to have a son, but Abraham had not yet seen the fulfillment of the rest of those promises. For us, God has fulfilled his promise to send a Savior and a Messiah who is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have already been saved from the penalty and power of sin, but we have not yet been saved from the presence of sin. We have not yet feasted in the house of Zion. We have not yet received glorified bodies or a dwelling place in the physical presence of the triune God. But we can trust God will someday completely fulfill his promises. So that's God's oath to Abraham. But what's really amazing is that God's oath wasn't chiefly for Abraham. We're going to see that it's, it was for the heirs of promise. That leads us to the second point, God's oath to the heirs of promise. We'll look at verse 17 and the beginning of verse 18 says this, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, dot, 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 to be continued in a minute. There are two words that hit me like a ton of bricks as I study this passage at the beginning of verse 17, God desired. God desired. Windsor Community Church. Don't let the amazing grace of those two words pass you by. Everything good and everything bad that God uses for good flow from these two words, God desired. When nothing and no one existed besides God being eternally happy in himself, God desired to create the universe. When only animals existed, God desired to make man and woman in his image for his glory. When Adam and Eve sinned and God could have justly destroyed them, God desired to give grace and kill an animal instead of them. When the hearts of mankind were only evil continually, God desired to spare the human race and start again, give us another chance. When there were no people of God, God desired to create and call a people for his own possession. When his people rebelled and sinned, God desired to send prophets to them, calling them back to faithfulness to their God. When all the world was still only and completely inhabited by sinful people, God desired to send his son into the world. 
to live a sinless life, to die on the cross in the place of his people and to restore us to right relationship with him. God desired to give us physical and spiritual life. He desired to give us friends and family and food and an amazing church family. And the list goes on and on. And verse 17 tells us that God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of promise the unchangeable character of his purpose. So he guaranteed his promise with an oath. So what did God want to do? Show even more convincingly to persuade, to assure an extreme amount the fact that his purpose, which flows from his character, will not change ever. And what is his purpose? It is the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. The reality that through the offspring of Abraham, who is Jesus Christ, all the nations of the earth have been blessed, have been given a Savior and a Messiah. God has given his Son to be the eternal great high priest of his people, and he has promised us salvation through him. And who does God want to give this great assurance to? The heirs of promise. That's us. That's Windsor Community Church in 2022, the year of our Lord, and every other church that is worshiping God. We are the heirs of promise. We who have received the promise of God to Abraham fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Paul says in Galatians 3.29, and if you are Christ, if you belong to Christ, if you are in Christ, if you are a Christian, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Heir is another word that should remind us of the already and not yet. It's a word that means assured but future ownership. We are assured that we will be heirs of God and even gives us a down payment of the Holy Spirit and spiritual blessings beyond number. But someday the inheritance we can't imagine. No eye has seen or ear has heard what God has prepared for those who love him. God's purpose, God's promise, God's oath are unchangeable. Theologians call this the immutability of God. It just means that God doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And his immutability is the bedrock on which the two unchangeable things stand, namely his promise and his oath. <clears throat> God keeps his promises. He has never not followed through on any promise ever. Therefore, he didn't have to make an oath. He would have followed through, but he made the oath to convince us that we could have strong encouragement to hold fast to hope. And that leads us to the third point, God's oath that gives us strong encouragement. The second half of verse 18 through 20. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We have seen from this passage and as we read our whole Bibles, the promise of God to Abraham fulfilled 
in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, we know that God can't lie. He confirmed his promise with an oath so we can just feel blah about persevering in faith and trust. We can just feel okay about God's promise and power to save us through Jesus Christ. Is that what's happening in your heart right now? It's not what happened in mine as I studied this week and as I preach before you right now. No, we have strong encouragement. We who have fled to God for refuge, fled from his wrath against sin, fled to him to be cleansed from the penalty and guilt of sin, fled to him in the midst of a fallen and broken world, we can have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. And that hope is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the hope set before us. We don't hope in hope. We hope in Jesus Christ. He won't let us down. He won't fail to save or to sympathize. We've seen that throughout this book. You guys may remember me telling my story in August. If you were here, I'm not going to tell it again. I'm just going to tell you this. I haven't been following Jesus from five years old, which is a great thing if you have. But I tried all the ways of the world. I tried everything the world said would make me happy. Be a good athlete. Make sure people like you. you got to be funny. Make sure girls like you. And it all let me down. I couldn't trust it. None of it filled the hole in my heart. And from the day that I got saved and started following Jesus Christ, he has never let me down once. The hole in my heart is totally filled and overflowing, even through hard times. We can trust in him. He will never let you down. Whatever we go through in this life, we can have hope. The original audience was facing persecution and a temptation to revert back to Judaism. They weren't being patient. Where's this second coming? Let's just go back to Judaism. That was familiar. And the hope of Jesus Christ is the answer to both of those things. The hope we have in Christ through the gospel enables us to persevere through suffering. And the truth of Christ from God's word tells us there is no other hope. Judaism won't save anyone, nor will any other belief or religious system. This is where we're so hated, church, and we shouldn't really care. We need to stand on this. There aren't multiple paths that lead to heaven. There aren't multiple hopes. Jesus is a way, but you could also do really good works and make it there too. Then why did he have to come and die? There is salvation in no one else but Jesus Christ. There is no hope in anything else but Jesus Christ. I've been having some conversations recently with some unbelievers in my life. And a question they've asked me is, are you guys a pretty open church? I don't know how to answer that. I want to say, what do you, what do you mean behind that. So let me tell you how I answered one guy while I was playing hockey. I said, we're open to anyone who wants to come and hear the word of God preached. We believe the Bible is the word of God, and we're a a friendly people who love singing to God and praying, and we are open to anybody who wants to come in these doors. But do we think that there's multiple ways to heaven? You mean, are you open like all the paths, like our culture means? I'm, I'm sorry, but no. We believe Jesus Christ is the only way. He is the only hope. And it was cool because the guy I was talking to was like, "Ah, that's cool, man. Good for you guys. Because he thinks every path goes there anyway. He goes to the Unitarian church. So he's like, hey, I'll see you there. And I'm like, 
I'll have more conversations with him over the months. One of my favorite verses is John 14, 6. Jesus himself says this. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Peter, in his sermon in Acts 4.12, says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus Christ is the hope of the world. And through him, we have an anchor for our souls. I know you guys know what an anchor is, but I'm going to define it for you anyway. It's a huge metal device attached to a ship, dropped down, usually connected by a chain or a rope, and digs into the floor of a body of water in order to hold the boat in place. The anchor would prevent the ship from running aground or drifting in an undesired direction. And the anchor for our souls, instead of going down, goes up into the very presence of God. And that's what it means when it says that it enters into the inner place behind the curtain in verse 19. I think Stephen mentioned this in in one of his sermons in Hebrews 4. can't quite remember, but I I know I've heard it recently. And you guys know the significance, or many of you know the significance of this, that on Jesus' death, the curtain in the temple that separated the most holy place from the holy place was torn in two from top to bottom, signifying two things. First, from top to bottom signifies that God ripped the curtain, that a man didn't come and rip it from bottom to top. And secondly, now that it was ripped, the presence of God was made available to everyone who would believe in the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ, that we have access to his presence, that it's no longer just the the high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement. But if you have believed and received the Lord Jesus Christ, you have access to the very presence of God 24-7-365. Our souls are anchored in heaven to the presence of God. That's an amazing reality. What assurance that is for us, isn't it? And isn't it funny that often the book of Hebrews is used as evidence that a Christian can lose their salvation? It's not true. If you are a Christian, your soul is anchored to heaven. It can never be not anchored to heaven. Jesus Christ, we've been learning through this book, Jesus Christ is the supreme son a better mediator than Moses who offers a better rest, who's the better high priest who has purchased for his people a better covenant that can't be gained by our moral performance or lost by our moral performance. Our souls are anchored in heaven. I'm a hockey player, I'm an ice skater, and I have a young son who I've been teaching to ice skate. He doesn't really need to learn anymore. He's a stud, but when I was first teaching Zeke to ice skate, I'd take him out to a frozen pond or to Epic, and I would hold his hand, and we would ice skate together, and Zeke would fall a lot. And certainly, Zeke was responsible to try to hold on to Daddy, but what was the assurance that he wasn't going to fall? My grip on him, not his grip on me, because he would lose his grip. He was not strong enough to hold on to me, especially when he had gloves on. And I would hold so tight, maybe I'd separate his shoulder. I'm holding so tight. But that kid was not falling. He definitely wasn't going to hit his head. He was wearing a helmet anyway. But that's the picture, you guys, of us with God. We do hold on to God. There are seasons where we hold tight, but there are going to be seasons where we're barely hanging on. But we can trust that he has got an infallible and eternal grip on us. We are not going to fall if you are in Christ. And we can know 
that our souls are anchored in heaven because, verse 20, Jesus has gone there as a forerunner on our behalf. This word forerunner is defined like this, one that precedes and indicates the arrival of another. His arrival in heaven shows that someone or some, we are coming behind him. The word forerunner could be used of the spies who we read about in the Old Testament. They're sent out to spy out the promised land, to bring back a report, and then bring the rest of Israel with them back to the promised land. That Jesus is our forerunner is a guarantee that we will be coming behind him. And not only is that a guarantee, but Jesus remains in heaven as our high priest forever. His tenure is forever, eternal high priest. He will never die. He'll never leave his post, and he will never stop interceding for his people. He's a high priest forever, it says, after the order of Melchizedek. Now, Dan loves me enough, and I'm new enough here that he didn't make me preach next week's text, which is all about what it means that Jesus is the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So I'm going to leave you on the edge of your seats about Melchizedek. Come back next week, and Dan's going to preach, I think, 28 verses on it. What I want to highlight is that this Melchizedek is actually a reference to another oath in the Bible, that of Psalm 110, verse 4, which the the author of Hebrews has referenced many times already in this book. It's an oath that gives us a greater understanding of how God fulfilled his promise to Abraham to bless the nations through him. So listen to Psalm 110, verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That is our Lord Jesus Christ. He's swearing that oath to. You guys, I I couldn't trust the stewardess on that terrifying plane flight or the captain. I've been let down and I had promises broken to me countless times. The truth is, even as a Christian, I've broken my own promises to my wife and kids. But there is one who will never break a promise, ever, completely trustworthy, He will never let you down. He has never let me down. And we can bank on the promises of God. Our motivation to press on in faith and patience flow from the absolute guarantee of God's promise to save us through Jesus Christ, our eternal great high priest. I love that we sang the song before the throne of God above. I was trying to dry my tears before I came up here and preached. This is one of my favorite songs, and it is perfect for this text. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Whatever you're going through, good or bad, get your eyes on Jesus Christ this morning, Windsor Community Church. He is the guarantee that you have been saved and you will be saved. Amen? Pray. We love you, Lord. We praise you. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that our souls are anchored to heaven and that this morning, Lord, you through your word wanted to show us the heirs of promise to have strong encouragement. We are convinced, Lord, by your word that you are good, you're faithful, you keep your promises, you've never failed on one thing. All the promises of God are yes and amen in the Lord Jesus Christ. Love you, Lord. Help us grow in our knowledge and understanding of you and share this news with people in our lives. Use us for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.